The following program is a Forbes and Podcast One production. Hi, I'm Denise Ristori, and you're listening to Mentoring Moments, a podcast where smart, witty, and bold women are sharing their triumphs and their skids. We aren't just talking, we're taking action. And we're inviting you to join us every week in my New York City apartment. And here's an action, speaking of actions, that's simple. It's great that Mentoring Moments is free, and you can help keep it that way with minimum ads by taking a really simple survey. It's short and it's anonymous, which if that's important to you, it it is anonymous. And it takes less than five minutes, and there are two ways to do it. You can go to podcastone.com slash my survey, or go to podcastone.com and click on the survey banner. As always, thank you so much for supporting the show, and I'll be sending you super huge positive vibes through the universe your way. And today, I'm at my kitchen table, and I wish my guest were because I'd love to see her in person and be with her here, but (laughs) Drew Kataoka is in California, and we're on Skype, which is the next best thing to being here. So, Drew, welcome. Thank you. I feel like I'm at your kitchen table, though, Denise, because you have such a warm presence. Well, thank you. And the same for you. And we're both having coffee. So we're kind of almost there. We're almost there. It's the best we can do. And that's what life's all about. You got to do the best you can do. Absolutely. So I'm going to introduce you so everyone will see how fabulous you are, as I have seen. And so I'll start with you are an artist and a technologist. Mm -hmm. And that means you think with both your left and right brain. (laughs) And Drew is known for creating interactive, and I'm going to say this slowly because I want everyone to be able to really absorb this. You create interactive and engaging artworks with significant social impact using cutting edge technologies like virtual reality, brainwaves, and mobile platforms. So here are three examples of what that looks like. Drew was the first artist to send art into space at the International Space Station. And her latest artwork, called Yes, Nell is the Time, is also a first. She takes us into a parallel universe where women gather together for the change they want to see, where we're celebrating past trailblazing females and their accomplishments and dreaming about future accomplishments. What will we be the first at next? Her pieces touch our future, and 400,000 is not a number, helped shine a light on the critical issues of infant mortality and the rape kit backlog. Drew grew up in Tokyo. She's a graduate of Stanford University, even though her mentors thought she should go to New York City or Paris or somewhere that's a little more creative than Stanford, but somehow it seemed to work out okay. And she was named a young global leader and cultural leader of the World Economic Forum. So, Drew, again, welcome, welcome. We're going to have, I can't wait to get into this with you. And as I was thinking about my mentoring moment, I've been very engrossed and been absorbing your yes, now is the time and the first of women. And I started to think, and this is what's great about art, right, that you, makes you think. I started to think, what am I the first at? And what do I want to be mm-hmm. the first at? Mm-hmm. And that second part is really empowering. But my mentoring moment is about what I was the first at. And the first thing that came to my mind, and so I'm sharing that story, is I was the first in my family to 
adopt a child. And what I realized is being the first isn't always that easy. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll explain that in this story. So seven years of infertility treatment and years of therapy. And I came to that realization that adoption was the best thing for me. It wasn't my second choice. It really was my first choice. And even though I had been trying so hard to have a child, a biological child, through this process and this journey, I realized that even if I could have a biological child, I still wanted to adopt a child because I just felt that that's what I was here, that there was a connection that I just needed to do that. Mm-hmm. But it took me years to get to that point. Now, meanwhile, my family is watching me suffer through the years of infertility treatment and all the craziness that goes on with that and being my biggest cheerleaders of, you know, it's going to be okay, honey. And meaning this in the right way, they were like, try harder, try harder. That's not good advice sometimes, but meaning it with the best intention, right? It was like, it'll be okay. It'll be okay. So now I'm at a different point and I'm going to adopt and I tell my family and they're like, what? And the first thing that comes out of my mother's mouth, who I love my mother, and so I'll explain why later, why she said this. But she first went into things like, well, you know, Stella down the street, her nephew's you know, cousin, they adopted a child, and he was in jail. <laughs> so, so I would go into defensive mode, and I would say stupid things like, well, and I'd put my hands on my hips, right, and I'd be like, well... John Hinckley Jr., you know, the man who attempted to assassinate President Reagan, he wasn't adopted. And then you realize what a moron you're all starting to sound like, right? It's like, okay, stop. Stop the nonsense. Stop the craziness. But what I realized was I was at a different point in my thinking, my knowledge, my being than my family was. I didn't let them catch up to me. They didn't have the education, the knowledge I did. So I learned that sometimes when we're a first, we're at a different point than the people around us, mm-hmm. whether that's at home or at work. Mm-hmm. And we need then to be the first at doing something else to educate them, to bring them up to where we are. And, you know, the great part about this story is my mother, I swear to you, I mean, she, I know that she loves, she loves Allie more than, and she loves Allie more than I do. Allie walks into the room. Allie's my daughter. She walks into the room. My mother just lights up. If ever I were to say something about Allie, my mother would always be the first. Well, Allie's great. Allie's fine. Allie's going to be okay. She's like Allie's biggest defender in life. She lived with us for five years when Allie was a baby and her love for Allie has grown from the moment she was born. I was Allie's birth mother's Lamaze coach. So I've had Allie from the moment she was born, from the moment my mom and all of my family members set eyes on Allie. It was love at first sight and it's only growing. Mm. So that story in the beginning, that it was a fear factor of mm. my parents not understanding and not being where I'm at. So that is my mentoring moment that sometimes being the first is hard, but sometimes we just need to educate others around us. That's a beautiful story. And it is true that this question, what are we the first at is something that we don't ask ourselves enough or also the complimentary question which is what is the first that we'd like to see um for ourselves or or for others but i love your story thank you for sharing but thank you and you know, and you've really made me start to think about what do i want to be the first at 
next? What do I want those things in my life? And it's not that pound on your chest, I'm the first. Mm -hmm. And maybe I won't be the first at something else. Maybe I will be the second, but I'll maybe do it my way the first. Yeah, whatever it is. So it's not that egotistical, I want to be the first. Or the first in your family, the first in your family, or the first in your community, or the first in your school. And there's so many frontiers that we can uh, push. So you can think about this for a day, for a weekend. You can reflect on it. And it's a great question for our audience because as one does begin to reflect on it, it it has the potential to push you into whole new directions. Oh, definitely. And that's why I think I'm so thankful that you've brought this into my life to start thinking about it. Because when you start thinking about it, it's like, well, I want to be the first at this and I want to be the first to do that. And it really starts to open you up to what you can do, small and big. And what I realized at first is I was getting stuck because I was thinking big, like, well, you know, somebody will be the first woman to go to Mars. So what can I do like that? Right, right. But it doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, it's, we're only limited by our creativity and there's so many different possibilities. There's so many different ways that we can think about that and look at how we want to contribute to the world. And, you know, you can define it however you want to define it. And it's very empowering. So we'll continue that conversation. But now I want to hear what your mentoring moment is. Mm-hmm. Well, my mentoring moment revolves around one of the most challenging moments in my life, uh, which was the passing of my father. And I feel like it, it really was an inflection point in my life, in my, in, my, in my view on life, but also in the way that I thought about and created my art. Uh, as, as background for this, I was born in Tokyo, Japan, and I spent my um, early childhood there My father was Japanese and my mother is American. And uh, so I'm I'm biracial. I've always had one foot in East and and one foot in West. And I feel grateful for that because I feel it's afforded me um, kind of a unique perspective on the world. I I feel like I'm not always just coming straight on from one place, but I'm kind of coming from multiple places. And so I'm um, in between. And uh, my dad, you know, he was a a lifelong smoker, uh, and that's unfortunate. And I always tell young people, don't smoke, because I saw someone die from smoking, and it's a a terrible, tragic thing. But he uh, was living in Japan at the end of his life, and so when he became very ill from esophageal cancer, he was in a Tokyo hospital and I was in California. And so I would fly a lot back and forth from California to kind of, you know, my life and keep up with my work and then fly to Japan and catch up on him and see how he was doing. And because of that, I ended up spending a lot of time in hospitals and airports. And I found it very haunting these very artificial environments that I would be thrown into back and forth, juxtaposed against seeing my father actually slowly melt away. And um, it dawned on me in the context of this, the profound parallel that there is between hospitals and airports. I had never really made that mental connection before, Um, but this situation opened that viewpoint up to me. And I I started to think about how in an airport, there's these 
continual departures and arrivals. There's people that are arriving all the time and people that are departing all the time. And similarly, in in hospitals, on any given day, there's going to be many babies that are born and arriving into this world at the same time, many people who are departing. So it it made me wonder is, you know, when we, when we think about these things, is it, um, departures are kind of parallel to death and arrivals to birth or departures, uh, parallel to birth and, and, and the arrivals kind of parallel to, to, to death. And I was thinking that, um, you know, in parallel with this, watching uh, my father in the hospital, I was actually very moved by his his room, and I and I uh, decided that I would create this this art installation. Um, after after he passed away, I w- I was inspired to create this piece called Airport for Souls, and the uh, the artwork was a very unusual piece and integrated elements that I had never uh, used up up until that point. And what I did was create a full installation of his hospital room. So imagine a room, you walk in, there's a hospital bed, there's all the equipment, there's the IV fluid, there's a little table. Um, but then on the, t- on the bed, I, I actually painted one round circle. So the whole bed became a canvas for the rising sun of Japan, kind of as a tribute to him. It was like, looked like the, the flag. So a red circle in the middle of the bed. So you imagine this big white sheet with the red circle looks like the Japanese flag. But it was also to say that we enter this world as a spot of blood on, on hospital sheets. And many of us will leave the world in the same way. So it's just a, a statement about our common humanity. But along with the room, what's very haunting about it is that when you walk inside, there's a, a soundtrack, a 24-hour soundtrack. I mean, it's about that long uh, that so you could walk in and walk out of many recordings that I had uh, put together from my trips during that, that year, uh, many recordings from from the airports that I had visited. And um, also that year there was many storms and high winds. And so I had recorded a lot of storm sounds and um, the sounds that are the recordings that are in the airport. And I had, I had noticed because when I had spent all this time in the airport that all of these messages that are spoken to passengers as they're walking through in this very disembodied way about where they're going and where they should be going and how they should strip themselves of whatever belongings and they should be processed. And all these things took on this metaphysical meaning. And when you layer all those voices of the different airport recordings, while while you step into this room, um, it's, it's pretty haunting about the, you know, the transience of, of life and the, you know, the feeling that you get from it. That really is beautiful. And it's an incredible story. And as you're telling it, there's so many thoughts through going through my mind, but one is you're able to look at something, to feel something, and then to turn it into a different reality, a different, and, and to turn it into communicate what you're feeling mm-hmm. to, to others. And I, I think about all of us, we may not have the skills and talents that you do as an artist and a technologist and connecting those two, but how many times we see things that we're in such a hurry that we don't take the time Absolutely. to go beyond 
and mm-hmm. to think, what can I do? And in your case, you know, what can I do to tell this story as coming off of the women's march and looking at what can we do next? And one of my fears is that it becomes a moment and not a movement and wanting it to be a movement that we keep moving forward. But I think a big part of that is we have to be able to see things and do something with them. Well, I think that everyone has an artistic side and a technological side. And I think that we often shortchange ourselves. Uh, I agree with you. And I think it's incredible. Here's an interesting trick. Just putting a notebook in your hand and drawing what's around you is an amazing exercise because people, when they do that, sometimes they get afraid and they focus too much on what they're trying to draw and if it's good enough, but actually what you're drawing doesn't matter at all. What matters is that once you put that notebook in your hands, your levels of observation go up like threefold. And it's like a magic lens. It's like a magic pair of glasses. And I've done this so many times. I'll be sitting around somewhere just like uh, watching a street scene or something and I see it. But then I put a notebook in my hands and I think I go into this mode like, oh, I'm going to start to draw what I see. And just even with the pen in my hand, I start noticing all these little details that I would have never noticed. And at the end result of whatever I, I drew, that could be interesting or not. But what's really powerful is that it changed completely the way that I saw everything and it heightened my powers of observation. And that's something that anyone can do. You can literally just say, what if I were to look at this as if I were going to have to draw it? And from the moment you put the paper in your hands, your brain starts to look differently. And you start to notice all these different things. And do you have a tip for how do you get over that fear of, of saying, okay, I'm going to draw this and it doesn't have to be a great drawing. How do you get over that? Because you are a great artist. I will say, I don't have your talent. Well, I, right. I, <laughs> you're a fabulous artist. Everyone has their But I have other talents. They have to unlock. And I think it's important not to always be in a judgmental mode about ourselves and we're harshest on ourselves. And also to understand that we don't know what the final uh, product or the final destination will be. In the context of an artwork, um, I often have an idea, I often have a vision, but I don't have every single aspect of that pinned down, nor would I want to, because as you go down the journey of creating an artwork, um, there's different problems, there's different opportunities, there's different uh, ways in which you do things that you could not have even predicted, and that ends up making the artwork better. So when you sit down to draw to answer your question or to do something creative, taking that burden off your shoulders that you're supposed to know how it's going to be architected to perfection and know every stroke and every step. You can just take that off your shoulders because you don't know and you shouldn't know. Uh, there's no way for you to know. And actually, you know, with the story I just told you about Airport for Souls, I didn't know when I started that journey, which was one of the most difficult things in my life to see my father just dying before my eyes. I didn't know what I would eventually create out of that. Uh, or how I would articulate the devastation. But I was patient and I was I listened. And I think we just have to listen to the inner voices that we have that speak very quietly, um, but they, they know. And uh, we just have to be observant and, and reflect, take the time to reflect on what we've experienced. 
And that's one of the things that I've really been trying to do more this year is to take that time to get away from the computer, whatever it is that sucks a lot of my energy, and to take that time and just say, just look around you, take it in, reflect on what's going on. And you start to see things so differently. Absolutely. And I think we shouldn't make ourselves feel that we have to create a masterpiece or we're creating some great thing. I I think sometimes a great trick is to just say, oh, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just drawing this thing or I'm just writing this thing. Um, Think about it very casually because the most important thing is to just get into the studio or get to the desk or get to the table and start, start and just start working. And, um, you know, you'll, you, a lot of good things will eventually unfold, but when you put a barrier in your mind that this has to be this or that, then it it can start to block you. Yes. And I have a friend who is a great artist as well, Mary Fisher, and she does a lot of fabrics that are just beautiful. And so she gave me a book once and some pens and said, all I want you to do is doodle, just doodle. Yeah. And see what comes out. I mean, don't even think about what it is you're trying to do and see what images start forming. She's like, you know, go to the park, go wherever it is that you like to be and just don't even think about it. And it was really so enlightening and so powerful to do that because number one, it took my fear away because of course I can doodle. It's like, you know, who can't doodle? Um, But it it was really, it was some of, I, I love some of the pieces that I created. That's wonderful. So now I want to tap more into your brain and really to tap into you and looking at how you take an idea and how you keep building on it. So using your latest artwork, Yes, Now is the Time, is that example, and asking you to share that story about how it came from the beginning to what you're doing with with it now, because it's a great evolution. Thank you. Well, so Yes, Now is the Time began as Now is the Time an artwork that I created in the spring of 2016. And I was inspired to create it after thinking about uh, all of the places where we lack female leadership. The one that was really on the minds of our nation was seeing a female president. And I was just sitting back and I was like, we've had 44 male presidents in a row what's even the statistical probability of selecting 44 men in a row if we were just to choose them at random from the population, which is half women, half men. And it turns out that that's less than one in 10 trillion. So I was thinking that that there's something wrong with that. And so I was thinking about this and I thought it would be amazing to create an hourglass of women's achievements and to place all of them in in chronological order in this hourglass. I thought about the hourglass as I was driving through the forest one day, and that image came to me very strongly because I was thinking about the vastness of time and the sands of time flowing through the hourglass and those grains of sand almost being like the individual women themselves. It's like so vast women's contribution to our world um, over millennia, but it's also so hard to measure and we'll never even be able to count or to know what those all those contributions are. So I had the image of the hourglass and I said, what if we start at the bottom and we start putting in accomplishments like 
you know, 1809 was the first woman to get a patent and 1887 was the first American woman to be mayor of a town. And I started putting in the first woman to circumnavigate the globe and uh, win a gold medal for the Mathematics Olympiad. And I started to assemble all of these firsts into the hourglass. And I, I created an image um, called Now's the Time against the backdrop of the American red and white stripes. And I started to uh, give it away to um, people who were volunteering for Hillary Clinton's campaign. Because at the top of Hourglass, I forgot to mention, I had put... Um, first woman president in 2017, i.e. that was a first that we were looking towards, but it hadn't happened yet. And and this image just really took off in the grassroots of her campaign. People loved it and they shared it. And I, I started giving it away in the Bay Area, but then I, I started hearing from people in different um, places across the country. And I was encouraged by many people to sell it so that we could raise money for the campaigns. So we raised a lot of money uh, over the course of the campaign. But um, before, while still in the spring, you know, uh, Secretary Clinton uh, saw the image, she and her campaign loved it, and they invited me to feature it at the Democratic National Convention, where it was um, the only featured artwork that was unveiled that week. And we unveiled it. And we also uh, had a station in this highly trafficked area where people would come and they would get their photo or their selfie uh, with a giant version of this image and they would uh, look at all the first and when you stand in front of it and you look at the image and for people who are listening right now you can go to yesnowisthetime.com to kind of see the image as we're talking about it but people would look at it and they would get quite emotional because it's like taking a walk through history and looking back at all these shoulders that we stand on then people would say things and they would tell me about their firsts or their mother's first. You know, there was a woman who said, you know, my come to think of it, my grandmother, she was a first, she was the first postmistress of this little town called liberal Missouri. Or this woman was like my grandmother, my great aunt, um, was the first woman psychologist west of the Mississippi and her name was Agnes Chadwick and she had long hair and there were all of these everyday firsts that people began to share with me. And I realized at that point, while I was still in Philadelphia, that the artwork was not sufficiently open. So I went back home to Silicon Valley and I built an interactive version of this uh, art that you can see at yesnowisthetime.com where anyone can add uh, first, you can say I was the first to go to college in my family, or I was the first mayor of such and such town. And you put the year, your achievement gets bolded in red and placed chronologically in the hourglass, and you get a personalized version of the artwork that you could then share with your friends and, and social network and kind of spread the message of women's empowerment, because I think we do have to see it to be it. So it's extraordinary, all the people who have participated in all sorts of different firsts that I witnessed and learned about just from all of the people who, who contributed that I would have never known. And I, I felt um, so inspired by all of those people. So post-election, uh, there is so much traction around this project. And although we were really uh, celebrating the idea of 
having our first woman president and we still have our eyes on the prize. We know that's going to happen soon and we need to work towards it. I relaunched the project as yes, now is the time. And at the top of the hourglass also included many firsts that we haven't seen along with the presidential first. So we've never had a first woman president, but we've never had a woman head of NASA. We've never had a woman uh, chief justice of the Supreme Court. We've never had uh, a woman head of the CIA or FBI. And interestingly, I'm in Silicon Valley where we always point out all of the uh, places where women lag behind in uh, tech leadership. But in the cultural fields, the gender bias is as strong, if not stronger, and it's often not acknowledged. So put a couple of those in there too. We've never had a woman director of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. We've never had a woman uh, musical director of the New York Philharmonic. And that's true of many of the other top symphony orchestras as well. And so put all those at the top and then also added this functionality post-election where you could add a first for the future. So along with just adding an achievement that had already happened, you can now say, you know what? I'm going to be the first woman governor of California because actually there hasn't ever been one. So I was excited about this because I wanted to learn from the community what are all the things that we should have our eyes on? What should we be focusing on? What are the firsts that we haven't tackled yet? And, you know, in a way, a second and a third are just as important as the first, because if we don't have a second and a third, it means that we haven't paved the path. But the first is really, really important. And it's also a great way to shine a light on where we see the inequality and to, to show us where we need to work to fix that inequality. A few weeks ago, over 400,000 people listened to my interview with Adam Carolla. I'm Steve Bertoni, host of the Forbes interview. Thank you for your incredible support. This week, check out my chat with hip-hop giant Jason Derulo. What was your first kind of real payday? It was my first publishing check. It wasn't, it wasn't crazy. It was, it was maybe like 90000 or something like that. That's crazy to me. Subscribe to the Forbes interview on iTunes now, and be sure to give it a rating and review. Your home is important. That's why GEICO helps make it easy to save on homeowner's insurance. Because home is more than just a place. Home is where you have a cute little reading nook for those rainy days when you want to curl up with a good book, but you don't even read, so you just sit in there during thunderstorms and scroll through memes on your phone and laugh in the darkness. (laughs) The GEICO Insurance Agency could help protect the dark, meme-filled corner you call home. Call GEICO and see how easy it is to switch and save on homeowner's insurance. Now back to Mentoring Moments with Denise Rastari. So bring us up to what's happening now. So I've been working a lot in virtual reality uh, at the end of last year and uh, up until this year. And I'm very excited about virtual reality as an artistic medium. I think that virtual reality, mixed reality, augmented reality are going to have a transformative effect on our world. And the changes that we see are going to be faster than we think. And I also feel like right now we're at the beginning of this field of of, of VR and we are building a whole new world from scratch. Um, I think that the dawn of VR is going to be bigger than the, the dawn of the internet. If you rewind the clock and think about how you felt about the internet when it first came out, almost everyone can say they couldn't have anticipated 
what a big impact that would have on their lives. Like it, it exceeded one's expectations. And I think the same thing is going to happen with virtual reality. The things that are going to unfold in the next year, in the next five years, in the next seven years are absolutely going to blow us away. And so because we are building a whole new world from scratch, we have a tremendous opportunity to uh, permeate this world with a kind of with a set of values, with an with an ethos that we would want to permeate it with. And you know, virtual reality, uh, like all new technologies, has has its early adopters. And one of those early adopters right now is like pornography. There's a lot of you know sexual violence and things like that that are that are there. And the pornography industry is. Um, they are always early adopters of, of things. And so they always um, grab new technology quickly. But I am interested in um, also making sure that women are included early on, not just as objects to be objectified, but uh, to bring their voices and their, per- their perspectives. And so what is happening? Can you talk just briefly about the gathering of women? Mm-hmm. So I, uh, I I thought it would be incredible to take Yes, Now is the Time and translate it into a three-dimensional virtual reality artwork. Uh, after all, it had started as a three-dimensional idea in my brain last year, which translated into a two-dimensional artwork as a poster. And now I'm bringing it back into three dimensions by uh, having it in virtual reality. And the artwork in VR, if you ever get a chance to see it, it's when you put the VR headset on and step into the space that I've created. It's like the hourglass is 20 feet tall. It's like a big towering um, sculpture uh, where you see the beautiful shape and profile of the glass. And you, as you walk around it, you can walk around it fully in the round as if it was a sculpture in a museum. You can see all of the achievements of the women inscribed on its virtual surface. Uh, in parallel with this, I've been really interested in uh, social VR and the idea of people from different places coming together without ever having left where they are, but somehow being able to meet and having a sense of shared presence. So um, what I did was do a convening of women from different parts of the country around the artwork so that we could uh, spark a discussion about firsts, past, present, and future, and also um, you know, experience the artwork in virtual reality and create a first, which was which would be a convening of social VR, art VR for a social cause, which had never been done in that way. So I collaborated with my friend Martina Welkoff of Convene VR, and she and I moderated the discussion. And you can see it on um, online at drew.net. And I... It- Drew, everything that you are doing, I I love your art, as you know, and this project I just love. So I encourage everyone to go, please check it out. It's it's so inspiring and really does make you want to take action. And that's what we really need now. So thank you for doing what you're doing, because I think this will help us all take that action. Thank you, Denise. Thank you for your work. And now you're welcome. And and I have the best time doing my job because I get to hang out with women <laughs> like you. So how could you know, how, can't get better than this? So Drew, we're going to do. I'm done with that. I'll start so you can think. This is not hard sometimes to think of what I'm done with. I have this long list, but today I'm done with giving people who are unhinged 
giving them my energy. Mm. Because what I've realized is when I give people who are unhinged my energy, it depletes my energy to do something positive. And I think there's a fine line sometimes. I was talking, my Pilates instructor was saying that right after the election, she was so depressed. She was really feeling lousy all the time. And one day she woke up and said, you know what? I'm not going to let this happen anymore. I'm not giving anyone the power over me to make me feel this way. I'm going to be happy. And we talked about this, and I think that's great. But And also, there needs to be another part. I'm going to be happy, and I'm going to keep moving forward and keep moving things forward. So it's not like just saying I'm going to tune out, but it's the I'm not going to give energy to people who are unhinged any longer. So that's what I'm done with. How about you? Sounds like some good advice. <laughs> well, I think this I'm so done with that series that you've started is is so much fun. And I I love hearing about some of the other ones that some of your guests had shared. And you asked me about that today and I thought about it and I'm so done with people underestimating um, my technical skills or the technical skills of women that are around me. So it happens to me all the time. I see it and it happens to a lot of women friends that I have that are amazing. So just when people come into a meeting or a space and there's different technology on the table, often the men in the room will make the assumption that that couldn't have been done by the women that are present. And there's a lot of talking down to the women when often some of the women that are in the room can, can actually like run circles around some of the guys. But um, I can't be too hard on those guys because I think there's a lot of implicit bias. And I think that um, we haven't had a lot, enough images of seeing women doing these things. So we need to see that more so that it becomes something that just seems normal to all of us. That if you saw someone, if you saw a woman doing something technologically sophisticated, you're not going to be shocked. You're just going to say, yeah, that's just a normal thing. I think that's great to be undone with. And even in other areas, right, where we as women and other people put us into our boxes Absolutely. and saying, we're just not that good at that. Or just making the assumption before you even open your mouth. As you say, whatever field you're in, when you come to the table, just to assume based on your gender that you probably wouldn't have been the person who did that or could have built it or whatever the case may be. Right. And to realize your value and that your value, what you bring to the table is worth people listening to. What you bring to the table is worth people experiencing. It's versus that I'm going to sit back. It really is. I have value and I have worth and you need to know about it. That's right. And I think when we start doing that, more and more of that, that we will find our own power as women. Yeah, and we have to show up for um, other women as well. So when we're in situations, when we're at the board table or in meetings where there's critical things on the line and we see our women colleagues uh, with, we know, great ideas, you know, it, it helps to be able to make the conversational space to let their voice come through because sometimes women, they don't necessarily feel the need to overpower other people at all costs. And even if they have a fantastic idea, uh, they might not share it. So we can help each other by creating that space for other women's ideas to come through in an elegant way. 
Yes, I am with you 100%. And as you know, we could keep this conversation going on forever. I have one last thing as our takeaways, a question that I asked my network earlier, what is a question that they would want to ask you? And they listened, they watched you on video, they were on your website. And the question that kept coming up was, where do you get your confidence? In a positive way. <laughs> they, they want to borrow it. <laughs> it's like they want it to be contagious. Where yeah. do you get your confidence? Yeah. Well, I think about confidence a, a lot when I have to, let's say, go on stage or speak or present. Like right before I have to do something, I actually reflect on some of the powerful women in my life, like my, my grandmothers, both of my grandmothers, and they're gone now, but I feel like I can almost bring their, their spirit or their voices down. And they were such um, powerful, but just such generous women. And they had given me so much wisdom over, over the years. And so right before I'm about to do something difficult or um, critical, I'll just, I say bring them down is, is what I say, but uh, just, just bring their voices down. And I feel like they're right there with me and they're like, no problem. You've got this. And uh, I feel the spirit and the power of, of those ancestral voices. And that just supersedes anything that's out there, any kind of trivialities. It's like you have that on your kind of wind underneath your wings, then there's nothing you can't do. So that's one thing. And then I think meditation is is really powerful. Uh, my ink painting, which I started from the time of a child in Japan, of Sumie is a Zen art form. And so I have a lot of philosophical and aesthetic roots in Zen. And the samurai, before they went onto the battlefield, is that they would um, do these Zen meditations. And you have to imagine there can be nothing more difficult than knowing that you're going to go onto the battlefield and with high probability die. And if you're not concentrating, you're going to lose your life. So how do you put yourself in the mental mindset to go out there? Well, the, the samurai had perfected this and they were experts at meditation and experts at this idea of emptying one's mind. So getting into an empty mind state is so powerful. And I think that we do the opposite right before something difficult. So you can imagine as you go out on stage and you're giving a talk, you're like, okay, I got to remember to do this. And I have to remember to make this point when I get to the third paragraph. And then I've got to thank that sponsor. And then I've got to do, so now you've tried to put all this stuff in the box and it's all falling out when actually you should think about those things maybe a week before, but when it comes to the last five minutes before you're about to step onto the battlefield, you should be taking everything out of the box and emptying everything out of your head and, you know, practice that and work on that and, uh, you know, at different times. But then when you feel empty, you'll actually be full and you'll actually be poised. And all of that is with you. All those ideas that you had put in, a week before, a month before, a year before, all those things that you that are cumulative, they'll be there with you and then you'll have the confidence. You'll have that confidence. It'll just be natural. And um, Miyamoto Musashi was uh, Japan's greatest 
uh, swordsman. He fought 60 duels and then died peacefully in his sleep. He actually, the last set of duels that he did, he did them with a wooden sword because he was just bored with all of his opponents. There was nothing, no match he could not uh, win. And and he was also one of the greatest um, sumie painters of Japan. And we still actually have some of his ink paintings as as national treasures and they're extraordinary uh, artworks. So there's a really interesting connection between ink painting, uh, swordsmanship, um, the samurai mentality, the artistic mentality, the performer mentality, like uh, what one has to do before a creative act, before uh, stepping on whatever kind of stage or battlefield or, or, to, or platform to do something difficult. Um, emptying oneself can actually be very powerful in, in creating a platform of confidence to do your best. You know, G, whenever I, we talk, I walk away be, feeling calmer, smarter, oh. and more ready to take action all at the same time. Oh you God. have this wonderful, it's your being. It's not, a, I don't want to say ability because that's the wrong word. It's who you are. It's so genuine. It's just, it's just so deep inside of you. And I think that shows up in your style on how you know, how you, you dress beautiful you, you're you're so cool you're just so cool but i think it's who you are and that's why it is so cool well i'm i'm every day i'm i'm just humbled by um all of the big opportunities that there are out there to work together and and tackle some of these problems and um i'm i'm really uh inspired by by people who are constantly have an open mind and, and constantly are in a learning mode, are kind of uh, humbling themselves um, to all of the incredible things that are unfolding out there. So uh, I think that also in this economy, um, if we keep ourselves in a learning mode, we're going to be poised to, to be uh, successful. Yes, yes, yes to everything you said. And I want everyone to be able to find you so that they can get more of Drew. That could be a title for a book, more of Drew. I don't know. So, I don't know. <laughs> so where can we find you? Well, my, my website is drew.net. That's D-R-U-E.net. D-R-U-E.net. And I am also on Twitter and Instagram as my first name, last name. Drew Kataoka, so D-R-U-E-K-A-T-A-O-K-A. That's my handle, all one word, D-R-U-E-K-A-T-A-O-K-A on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And then my website's Drew.net. Drew, I can't, I want to thank you so much. And I really wish you were here so I could give you a big hug and thank you. What, What you have to offer is just so valuable and so important. So thank you for sharing it with me and with all of our listeners. Thanks so much, Denise. Thanks for your tremendous work. Thank you. I was at an event the other night and I said to someone, oh, Drew Kataoka is going to be on my podcast. And the woman lit up and said, she's such a rock star. I can't believe you have her on your podcast. And I couldn't agree more. Drew is a rock star. And I am so happy she joined us today. Thank you for joining us on Mentoring Moments and to make sure you get Mentoring Moments the moment it's live, which is every Wednesday, subscribe on iTunes and rate and review.
And I'd love to hear your thoughts about today's conversation with Drew. What inspires you? And bigger than that, what do you do with that thing or those things that inspire you? And when you go into a situation thinking you know everything, how do you empty your mind to let in new thoughts? How do you approach things differently? And what about Drew's tip about drawing? Take out a pad and start drawing. I'm really going to do this. What do you really see when you start drawing? So follow me on Twitter. Talk to me there. I'm at Denise Ristari. And until next week, keep sharing your stories because your stories matter. Download new episodes of Mentoring Moments every Wednesday at podcastone.com, forbes.com, the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at iTunes. Hi, guys. It's Jack Manick from The Lady Gang. If you like mimosas and having a bunch of girl talk, why are you not listening to The Lady Gang? We are your one-stop shop for all your lady talk. New episodes are out every Tuesday on iTunes or podcastone.com. At Farmers Insurance, we know the sound of a perfect hot air balloon landing. And a less than perfect one. Seen it, covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. London police have arrested Julian Assange on extradition charges to the United States, as well as for violating his bail. Assange is accused of publishing classified documents through WikiLeaks. In 2010, he told Sky News he was worried about what the U.S. might do to him. The United States recently has shown that its institutions seem to be failing. Uh, They are failing to follow the rule of law. And with dealing with a superpower that does not appear to be following, following the rule of law is a serious business. He also said in 2010 the U.S. officials had threatened him and those associated with him. There has been many calls by senior political figures uh, in the United States, uh, including elected ones in the Senate, uh, for my execution, uh, the kidnapping of my staff. Edward Snowden, the former security contractor who leaked classified information about U.S. surveillance programs, says the arrest of Assange is a blow to media freedom. I'm Rita Foley.